0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It started with a baptism, an ordinary enough thing, right? The baptizer may have been a little unusual, wild-eyed, bug-eating John, who lives in the wilderness and is like... Getting in touch with nature, man. When John baptized Jesus, some insist a voice came from the clouds. Others say that's nonsense, it was just thunder. Everyone knows it was a cloudy day. A plain dove lit upon Jesus in that moment, though you and I know it was just a common pigeon, if you've been in our Birds of the Bible study. And I don't know what you were hoping for in the paradox of God's baptism, but there will not be a commanding presence bursting forth that causes all to fall to their knees, blinded and wailing for the mercy that they know they do not deserve. Instead, the second person of the Trinity will be bathed by a dirty hippie's hands in our dirtier river waters. An epiphany. For who? Maybe Jesus, or John, or the crowds, maybe you. Then last week there was a wedding, and like all weddings, it was predicated on that very common miracle of falling in love. And then there was another miracle. Jesus' first order of business was that there would be no business but mirth. Not sure if you realized it at the time, but he made something like 150 gallons of wine. An incredible amount. Not just enough to wind the party down respectably, but a way of saying it had just begun. Why? You know, it wasn't wide-sweeping humanitarian aid for the desperately ill or the end of disease like we wanted. He did not appear with the judgment against our enemies, for which we clamored, or to expose the simpleness which we hide so skillfully, even from ourselves. No, he came for our gladness, an epiphany, for Mary maybe, or the servants, maybe you. And now, this week, Jesus goes to church, like us. Every week, giving the readings, saying the prayers, all his life. He gets up to read from the scroll of Isaiah before sitting down to preach about it. Sitting being the traditional teaching posture. Sounds comfortable. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he says. And that's the end of the sermon. The next sentence, which of course, uh, it doesn't show in your reading today, the next sentence is that the people were amazed at his words. Quote, I don't know if you're particularly amazed. As sermons go, I feel like nine words ain't much. I mean, I'd be amazed if I kept my job if I had a habit of giving nine, sermon, nine word sermons. But Jesus is telling them in his startling brevity that this is the kind of Messiah he was going to be. Now, the Hebrew scriptures gave some options for would-be messiahs, right? A king who could conquer and reunify the nation, or maybe the exalted priest to bring the former glory into the new temple. A military man who would lead the uprising against the foreign oppressor. But Jesus chose Isaiah. He says this is going to look like hope for the poor and the oppressed. God's favor proclaimed. He will be the bruised reed, the suffering servant. Difficult words to hear for all of us who imagine that worldly ways of power are God's ways as well. An epiphany. I don't know about you, but I love that we have an entire season dedicated to this experience called an epiphany a revelation without warning, an insight out of nowhere, a brief glimpse of understanding that feeling when something searched for clicks into place. It's a funny thing we do this, of all the feelings and experiences in life, to have a chunk of every year dedicated to this peculiar sensation of a new understanding. Now maybe you're thinking this season, well I guess I've not had an epiphany yet, and maybe I should try harder to have one, but you shouldn't. Trying is exactly the opposite of what an epiphany is. It's not like learning. An epiphany's very nature means it can't be willed into happening. It's a fleeting, finicky thing. And you can't even explain it very easily when it does happen. You know what I mean? I remember being very young and having been taught the concepts of multiplication, whatever age that was, very young. Not really understanding. My cousin Dwight and I were playing in the haymow of my grandparents' old barn and talking about my frustration with multiplication as we were climbing through the rafters. When I had this sudden rush of insight, I'll remember it forever, the way I stopped, wide-eyed, the sunlight, brilliant gold, and the clouds of dust that we were kicking up as though the god of math himself had shined his logical rays upon me. For whatever reason, after that moment, I could do it, and I understood what I was doing. I don't know why. You've had this happen though, right? And surely with better things than multiplication tables. Well, like you study a foreign language, and after a certain point of time, you reach that moment where you're not translating it in your head, but you find yourself for the first time reading it. Or I don't know, the first time that you find sheet music as a natural extension of yourself. When you woke up, and sometime after that move, after a long time, you woke up and you felt like you were home. Now, the funny characteristic about these epiphanies is that they don't actually come out of nowhere. It's an insight into something you've been paying deep attention to for some time. You read French because you've dedicated yourself to French. You learn multiplication because you've already been working at math for years. There's an ordinariness, even a mundanity, at the core of these epiphanies. So too with the stories we're telling of Jesus in this season. The wedding, for example. Typical to the point of a stereotype, right? That some detail will be dropped or some disaster occur. This very common thing as a sort of wild insight into God's character. Or an ordinary sermon, first being amazing because it's short, am I right? But really, because no one knows what to do with the type of Messiah Jesus is describing. We still don't. Even the baptism. Now, you all know here, course, that we believe in baptizing once and for all, that God's work is fully complete in that one immersion. No need to do it again because nothing can undo the work of God done in that moment period. But I like that some scholars think that Jesus might have been baptized loads of times. Ritual bathing was very common, particularly among the Essenes who were right in the thick of things in Jesus' time. Imagine Jesus going for his weekly cleanse, and then sudden insight. I don't know if it's true, if it happened like that, but I like it. You know, we come here every week, bringing the works of our lives. We take some, let's admit it, very unspectacular bread and wine, and we say these holy words and proclaim it, God's own body and blood. But even something that preposterous and fantastic can become ordinary when you do it all the time. You know that it's okay that it is, right? It's okay that you've memorized the words and sometimes have found your mind wandering as you recited them. That's the point. That the word be so near to you as to find its way into your habits and patterns. The emotional response comes and goes. The mind and body betray us, but the core remains. Listen, I've had an epiphany once. I was at a woman's bedside, giving last rites. Those words we say to greet the pitiless and unyielding ordinariness of death. She was a lifelong Episcopalian and her life had had this blessed combination of being both long and good. She had been unresponsive for days, hadn't eaten or drank in that time. I would later find out that it would only be a few hours to the end. But as her family and I all stood there holding hands, we reached the part where we say the Lord's Prayer. And I watched this woman's lips begin to move. To mouth the forms of words, joining us in a silent and miraculous recitation of those common phrases, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. An epiphany. They're hard to explain. The sudden gleam of the miraculous off the scuffed and worn surface of the ordinary. You never know when it will occur. It is for us to pay attention to the pigeons, the wine, the thunder, the haymow. For attention, as our great Mary Oliver said, attention is the first act of devotion. Amen.